Somebody magnify him. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I love that powerful declaration that Job made. Thank you very much, Brother Christian. I love that powerful declaration that Job made after going through the worst thing uh, in his life. He had lost everything, but he made a declaration that even if everything is taken away, I'm still going to magnify him. There's one thing that never got taken out of Job's life, and that was his worship of God. I'm telling you, hell can come and fight. The fire can get hot, and you can feel like you're sinking and drowning, but you can make a declaration of will that says, I will bless the Lord. Oh, somebody do that for just a moment. I will. I will. I will bless the Lord. Oh, come on. I feel that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. It's good to see everybody in the house of God here tonight. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn open to the book of Hebrews chapter 6. Hallelujah. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll be getting in verse number 1. Hallelujah. I love what I feel in the house of God here tonight. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. Now, before this, when you look at the Bible, the chapters and verses are not divinely inspired. They are just a way to help us give reference so we know where to look. But there are, there are some things that the, that, that the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying when you ought to be teachers, you have need of someone to teach you. And he's saying that there is some principles of the doctrine of Christ. And he lists them. And then he says that we're looking to hopefully get beyond just these right here, but, but not until God permits. And so he went through and talked about them. And, and today I want to do the very same thing. I want to teach for a few moments about the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now I'm going to throw a part one on there because I will not take all night. Uh, we'd be here till four in the morning, but... The principles of the doctrine of Christ. Would you set down your Bibles and let's pray one more time that God would speak to us, that God would teach us with his word. Oh, come on, that's it, church. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercies, oh God, which are new every morning. We glorify you, Jesus. We praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. One more time, let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise and a shout of victory. Hallelujah. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. The principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, there are a lot of things that we have been teaching on in our To Be Continued series. We have not even made it out of doctrine. Uh, we... The intention was to, to start the year and to continue 
as they did in Acts chapter 2, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And, and, and in this, we have spent uh, uh, really the last seven months, and we have not gotten off of doctrine. And I know uh, that in this modern uh, generation where there is something new in front of our face on our cell phones every five minutes, uh, every five seconds, there's a new image, there's a new this, a new that. Uh, we live in a generation where uh, things are rapidly changing. But one thing that is encouraging is that the Word of God never changes. And another thing that is encouraging is when we go and we study the doctrines of the Bible. They are in a world that is ever-changing, shifting. There is, there is sinking sand all around us. The Word of God is that firm foundation on which we can all build our lives, build our families. And everybody said amen. So... Tonight, I want to talk and start this off by talking about the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, the first thing that he lists is repentance. And like I said, we're not going to get all the way through this here tonight, but we will continue again uh, most likely next Wednesday. We will get through this. But the first thing he lists is repentance. Now, this is something we have talked about uh, earlier on in this year, but it's still something that... The, even the writer of Hebrews is feeling the need that he's got to continue to lay that foundation. And he's saying one day, if God permit, we will move on and, and we'll go to what he talked about in Hebrews 5 where he starts talking about Melchizedek and all these beautiful things in the scriptures. Did you know the Bible's full of, full of good stuff? The Bible is chock full of good information and there's a lot of principles and a lot of, uh, a lot of other things that could be talked about. But this, this writer of Hebrews understood that we can't move on to those things if we don't first talk about some of these principles right here. So he talks about repentance. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be turning to quite a bit of scriptures here tonight. Uh, if you have fast fingers, you can get there considered a Sunday school Bible drill. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. You can always write these uh, down. It will be on our SoundCloud. You can listen to this later if you want to go back and, and look through some of the verses. But... Talking about repentance, the Bible says in 2 Peter 3 and 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But he is long-suffering. God is patient. Anybody thankful for that? God is patient to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason God is patient with this world, the reason God is patient with you and I, is because the will of God is not for people to perish. Uh, I know a lot of places, and I've been a lot of places, where it is turn or burn. It is get right or get left. But I want you to know that God is very long-suffering. God is very patient. And the reason that God is patient is because God is looking for repentance. God is trying to make sure that his people find a place of repentance. Acts chapter 17 and verse number 30. This is how long-suffering God is. Acts 17 and 30. And at the time of this ignorance, God winked at. It's the only time in the Bible God ever winked. He winked at ignorance. He winked at the fact. Now, ignorance and stupidity are not the same thing. Uh, we all know a person that might have one or the other. Hallelujah. Uh, the, the, the ignorance is to not know. It is to not have that knowledge. And God comes by, and, and, and the Bible says he saw their ignorance, and he winked at it. In other words, he turned an eye towards it. And there's some people that live their lives with knowledge and think God's going to wink at their lifestyle. God's going to just turn away and turn a blind eye. But I want you to know that the rest of the verse says, but now, 
He commands men everywhere to repent. He, he had a moment where, the, where mankind was ignorant. This is before Jesus Christ showed up as our perfect sacrifice. But now there is a message going forth, and don't be tricked by the devil. There's not two messages. There's not a message that says, don't worry, God just, God just going to let you go, and everything's going to be all right. I want you to know the message is right here. God is commanding men everywhere to repent. 2 Corinthians 7 9. Now I rejoice... Not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed unto repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, and not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, I know a lot of people that when they hear the word repentance, they have been browbeat with the word repentance. And it is almost as if they are scared. You say the word repentance and people think they did something. They just, they're such terrible individuals and now God's going to smite them. Uh, but that's not really what it is. In fact, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the Bible says it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It is a gift from God. It is the love and the mercy. We just got done singing about that God gives us a space to repent. The Bible says right here that it is godly sorrow. Now, the sorrow of the world, it leads to condemnation. And there is a big difference between condemnation and conviction. The Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. When you are walking in the Spirit, you can have mistakes, you can do things wrong, but when you're walking in the Spirit, you will find that place of repentance. God will convict you. Uh, and and God, will, God will say, come on, let's go this direction. God will give you a space of repentance. God will give you an opportunity to repent because it's not his will that you should perish. Let me just say this. God is not looking for reasons to throw people into hell. Uh, I know some people that, that, that preach the gospel that way. The gospel means good news. The good news is God so loved the world. God said, I'm not trying to throw you into hell. I'm trying to get you into heaven. I'm, tr I'm not trying to condemn you. I might convict you, but that will always draw you closer to God, whereas condemnation always sends you further away. So godly sorrow is not something to be repented of. He's saying this is going to lead you to repentance. This is the avenue in which God works. It's conviction. Condemnation, on the contrary, will lead you further and further and further away from the grace and the goodness of God. It'll tell you you're not good enough and you've made too many mistakes and God can never love you and God can never. But yet, if you listen to the conviction of God, you might feel sorry for what you did. And I think that's right. Everybody's got to feel sorry when we do something wrong or we don't do something right. But that should lead us closer to God, not further away. Luke chapter 13 and verse 3. This is speaking of Jonah going and preaching uh, repentance to the people of Nineveh. And Jesus looks at them and says, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Without a turning from sin and a turning to God, there is no salvation. Amen. So this was preached by Jonah. The Bible lets us know that John the Baptist preached the baptism of repentance, saying that they should look on him that is to come, that is on Christ Jesus. And you, can you believe that when John was preaching repentance, the whole city came out to hear him? 
they were all looking and saying, what, what do I got to do? How can I? There was centurion saying, what do I got to do? Uh, I, I, I want to get right with God. And he says, don't, don't do violence to any man. There were tax collectors. Amen. I'm telling you, there's a revival of tax collectors in the Bible. Uh, and he said, what do I got to do? And, they, and, and he looked at him and said, don't exact anymore and be content with your wages and, and be happy with what you got. Don't steal. And, and his message was repent from what you've been and repent from what you've been doing. Jesus showed up in Luke chapter 5 and verse 32. Jesus didn't change the message. It was preached all the way in the Old Testament by Jonah. It was preached by John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 5 and verse 32, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God has come and God has looked over the self-righteous that think they got everything together. And I'm telling you, for those that got the wrong view of repentance, they think those poor sinners. Jesus showed up to tell him to repent. Oh, those poor guys. But I want you to know it was the goodness of God. And he said, I'll, I'll overlook the self-righteous to think they got it all together. And I'll go to those that recognize they need God. And I'll let them know, hey, I'm going to call you to a place of repentance. Amen. Luke chapter 15 and verse 10. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner that repents. I want you to know it is still exciting when people repent. It is still a joyous occasion. I want you to know there's nobody mourning and crying and saying, oh, poor person, they had to repent. No, angels are shouting and dancing over one individual that says, you know what, I want to get right with God. And if the angels in heaven shout over one individual that is praying, saying, I want to be right with God, what do you think the church ought to do? Somebody shout and give God praise. Hallelujah. Repentance is the first step in salvation. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. The Bible says, Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission, the washing away of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Luke chapter 24 and verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. It was the first step of salvation, repentance being a death to sin. It is where we join Jesus in the death, if you will. We die out to ourselves, to our nature, to our sins. And Jesus told them in the Great Commissions, in the Great Commission, to go and to preach repentance. It was something that 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 Jonah preached. It was something that John the Baptist preached. It was something that Jesus preached. And then it was something that he told all of his disciples everywhere in the Great Commission, that includes you and I, to go tell them to repent. Now, repentance and preaching repentance doesn't mean we go picket abortion clinics. I think the church can do a whole lot more good hitting their knees. Mm, Knocking a door, talking to somebody at Walmart. Uh, than than trying to picket this or picket that. And if you want to do that, that's your right as an American citizen. Go ahead. But, uh, but, But getting people to a place of repentance, it has to be presented the way the Bible presents it. Romans chapter 2 and 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and his forbearance? Again, he's long-suffering. He's patient. And his, his long-suffering, his patience, he's, he's withholding judgment, and now he's being patient with us. Do you despise the riches of his goodness or the fact that he's withholding judgment? Is that something that you're despising? He's asking a rhetorical question. 
not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. It is the goodness of God that leads every individual. If you ever repented, just know that was the goodness of God. The Bible says of Esau, he found no place of repentance. I want you to know it is a good thing when you get the opportunity to repent. Repentance is where, from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change one's mind. It is, it is the moment where God, in repentance, what happens is God is changing your mind. And it is the beautiful goodness and mercy of God that takes somebody who is like the prodigal son in the pig pen. And the Bible says he came to himself and he said, I'm going home. I'll tell you what that was. That was repentance. That was a change of mind. And I'll tell you what that came down to, the goodness of God. Acts chapter 3 and verse number 19. The Bible says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. One of the foundational doctrines and principles of the doctrines of Christ is repentance. And when we repent and when we are converted, when we change our mind, when God allows a, a transformation to take place in our mind and in our soul and in our being, what happens is our sins are blotted out and times are refreshing. God starts renewing. That's where revival happens, folks. When people start repenting, that's where revival is found. When people start saying, God, I want to be right with you, that's when God starts bringing refreshing, renewing. God says, I don't care what sin has done to you. I'm going to bring my presence. And in my presence, there's fullness of joy. And in my presence, there's good things. And there's pleasures forevermore at his right hand. Amen. So one of the principles is repentance. Let's talk about faith towards God. We're just going to go through each of these for a moment. Because if you want to get a little more in depth, we have taught on each of these uh, over the last few months, you can get, get a hold of some of those online. Faith towards God is probably one of the most basic doctrines in Christianity. I, I want to say that it's often one of the most misused and abused and misunderstood doctrines. Uh, it's much along the lines of grace. And, 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 and what has happened in the denominal world, they have taken grace out of context. And they have taken faith out of context. I want you to know that it is your active faith in Jesus Christ's gospel that saves us. It is our active faith. And I say that because there is a definition of faith that is inactive. That it is a mental assent. That I just believe that Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. And because I've come to that mental assent... And I have accepted him as my personal Lord and Savior. Let me just stop right there and tell you, that's nowhere in the Bible. I don't want to offend anybody, but the truth is, I don't know where somebody got off telling the rest of the world that all you got to do is come to a mental ascent and you just got to accept him as your personal. First, I don't know where that comes in. The Bible says that I will receive you. God accepts us. It isn't the other way around. We don't, he didn't do nothing wrong. We don't accept him. He freely accepts and receives us when we repent. So this, this, this idea of cheap grace and, 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 and cheap faith, it's, it's, it's inactive. It's, it's nothing more than humanism. 
But when you look at the Bible, you see that, that it is the active faith. Again, James talks about it, talking about faith and works. And you, you can't, you can, a lot of people would say, well, I have faith. And, and then he makes the, the, the defense that if you can show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Because faith should produce activity. Faith should enact, uh, it, should, it should produce action, if you will. Faith is not passive. Faith is not something, uh, you know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, you know, what shows more faith? Somebody says, I believe that I'm going to have a million dollars in the bank one day. Or the person that says, I'm going to save every dime I make for the next 30 years until I have a million dollars, and I'm going to get up and go to work every day. The person that, that says, I, no, you don't have faith, you got a delusion. I'm just going to have a million dollars one day. But you do nothing about it. The person that has faith is the one that gets up and ties their shoes every day, goes to work, and starts putting money away in savings. And the same is true when we start talking about salvific faith, if you will. You must join him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We do that through repentance, baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, and we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You have to have faith before you're going to do any of those things. You have to have faith that Jesus came, he was born, that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus rose again. You have to have faith before you're ever going to recognize that if I repent, God will forgive me. If I'm baptized, it wash away all my sins. And if I, if I will receive it, God will give me the gift of the Holy Ghost. You've got to have faith before you can get to that place. Faith toward God is one of the most foundational doctrines in the Bible. Without faith, you can't overcome the world. The Bible says even our, the, 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 this is the, the victory we overcome the world with, even our faith. It takes faith to overcome. It, it, faith in God means more than just a mental assent. It means believing Him, trusting Him, and obeying Him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. This right here, I would say, is, is, and this is why I never, I never would condemn somebody for saying, well, I, you know, I believe that Jesus Christ uh, is my personal Lord. I, I, don't, I don't trash anybody for that. But I, I do tell them there's, there's more to the gospel. And, and you really do need to study the word of God and get the full context. But because faith really is the first step. It is the first step. In fact, if you're ever teaching a Bible, say, I grew up in a home where we didn't go to church. Uh, and, 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 and really there was no... Uh, there was no Bible. There was no studying. There was no. Uh, there was no Sunday school. There was none of those kinds of things. So, uh, I grew up in a very agnostic, atheistic background, and I remember not believing in God because how bad life had been. And when I got in church, this is one of the first verses that really got to me, and it's Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The first step for anybody, I, I'll open up my Bible, and, and I can teach a Bible study to anybody. But before we get to that point, we got to start right here, that without faith, it's impossible to please, to please God. Nothing you do from this point forward, you could join, uh, shake a preacher's hand, join a church, uh, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. That is number one. 
And he that comes to God must believe that he is. That is the very primary thing. Uh, we, we, I don't debate with atheists. I don't do that. I let them know, hey, I'm going to pray with you. Is there something that's going wrong in your life? We're going to pray about it. We're going to believe God. Uh, if they want to talk and, and have a conversation, absolutely. But I always take them back. I can't. I could throw a thousand verses at them. But if they don't, first start off with believing that God is. That is the primary step and foundational step every individual has to take. And then you have the revelation that he is, but there comes this revelation that he also rewards those that seek him. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8. This is where people have taken these out of context. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Beautiful verse. You are saved by grace through faith. Faith, again, is more than a mental ascent. Faith is believing and trusting in God even though we cannot see him at the present time. Hebrews chapter 11 and 1, if we were to give faith a, a little bit more context. Hebrews 11 and 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now you don't see, you don't, you, we've not seen God face to face. And yet, we come to him in faith because we know that it's impossible to please God without faith. And, and we come and we recognize that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. And, and we look in the word of God and we see that we've got to repent and be baptized. And we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we step in faith. Again, this is what we're talking about. It's by grace are you saved through faith. And we realize that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I don't see uh, my sins being washed off of my garment. I don't see that. I'm not seeing it. But I have faith that when I go down in the baptismal tank and they call the name of Jesus Christ over me, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, you don't have to turn there. Uh, it, it says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Even though we cannot see him, uh, we, we, we know that he is there. He is guiding our daily lives. We have faith towards God. We believe that there is a God, and yet we have not seen him. We believe in a heaven, but we have not been there. We have not seen it. But we accept it, what? Through faith. We have faith that God will forgive. We have faith that God will save. We have faith that God will deliver. We have faith that God will heal. And we have faith that one day, soon and very soon, he's going to call his church away. And everybody said amen and give God a shout of praise. Faith, faith toward God is, again... It's not just believing in God or believing there is a God. It also means trusting and obeying God. Because you can believe in God all you want, have faith, if you will. Uh, uh, the, I, and when I say faith, I say that in quotes because I'm talking about what this denominal world would say faith is. Uh, they say it's just, again, a mental ascent. But if you turn to James chapter 2 and verse 19, uh, if faith is enough, then the devils are on their way to heaven. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. If faith alone or faith is enough and all you need is a mental assent or a belief that God exists, then the devil's going to meet you in heaven. But we know that's not true. I don't want anybody getting tripped up right there. We know that's not true. Uh, there is only redemption for the likes of you and I. Amen. You show your faith by trusting 
and obeying him. James chapter 1 and verse 22. There's a definition. Look through the book of James if you want to study faith a little deeper. You're going to get a much better or more and more biblical understanding of faith. Uh, be, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. What he's saying, if you are just hearing the word of God, but you don't do anything about the word of God, you are deceiving yourself. It's like we've said this before and used this example. You tell your child, clean your room, or I'm going to whoop you. And they say, I believe you. They don't really believe you until they do something about what you've said. And if the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection, if the gospel is repentance, baptism in the name of Jesus, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues, and we preach that gospel, the people that respond and obey the word of God, those are the ones that really have faith. I've talked to a lot of denominal people. I have debated with pastors, and I've cornered Mormons. And, and, and they, they can tell me till they're blue in the face that they believe, they believe, they believe. And then I finally stop them right there and say, you see it right there in the Bible. Oh, yeah, I believe that, brother. Well, I want to see your faith in action. Are you going to do anything about what you've just seen? And that's where, the, that's where things start shifting and changing because they like the idea of inactive faith. It's just a mental ascent. But you've got to obey the Word of God. You've got to follow the Word of God. And that's when you really have faith. And everybody said amen. How do we know that? Hebrews 11 is known as the chapter of faith. We call it the, the hall of faith or the heroes of faith. And, and we see that there are people that through faith, in fact, you see that phrase all the time, through faith, trusted and obeyed God. Faith was not a mental ascent. Faith was action for them. For example, we see that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Again, there's a messed up ideology of grace that, that, that they read Ephesians 2, 8, by, for by grace are you saved and not of yourself. It is the gift of God. And they look at that and say, well, I'm just saved by grace, brother. And they've got a misconstrued idea of faith and a misconstrued idea of grace. The Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of God. But what was the grace for Noah? It was the blueprints how to build an ark. And what was the faith for Noah? He went out and built the ark. Because if he had not responded to the grace through faith, if he had heard the word of God and God said, there's a flood coming though you've never seen rain and there's, there's going to come a day where I'm going to drown the entire earth. You've got to build the ark this way and you've got to build it to these specifications. Pitch it within, pitch it without. Do all these different things. Watch the details. Uh, make sure you, 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 you get everything ready for the day that it's going to rain. And he got the grace, which was the word of God. When God comes by with a word, that is his grace. When God comes by with a word of warning... That is his grace. When God sends a preacher to preach a word, that is grace. Amen. That is the grace of God. But he still would have, if he'd have said, well, I, I got the grace of God, I'm saved, he would have drowned just like everybody else. And if he would have heard the grace of God to build to certain specifications, and he acted out of his own human intellect, his mental ascent, and said, you know, I think that the ark needs to be a little shorter, it would have gone under the water and he would have sank. In other words, it took his faith to build it the way the grace of God presented it. Amen. So, we are saved by grace through faith, just like Noah. We can also look at the fact that if you look at the Israelites, they would have stayed slaves if they had not got up out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. 
if they would have stayed in Egypt and said, well, we, we, we got the blood over the doorpost, we must be all right. The plagues are flying and God's doing great miraculous things. But God was calling them out of Egypt. And you got to come out of the world. you got to come out of sin. you got to come out of all this stuff. And they crossed the Red Sea. And the New Testament says they were all baptized unto Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. So they went through the baptism waters just like you and I. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. They all showed their faith by trusting and obeying God. When God said, get up and go, they got up and went. When God said build, they built it. And when God said build it this way, they built it that way. They were saved by grace through faith. Hallelujah. So that's, that's, that's the first two when we talk about the doctrines of Christ. But now let's move on to baptisms. Now, if you remember, we just talked about this about, I'd say about three, four weeks ago. We talked about baptism. Uh, and, 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 and we're going to go through this just for a moment. Mark chapter 16 and verse number 16. And again, you can listen to that podcast. You can uh, go, go a little further into it. But this is still good. We're laying foundational things. So for those that are still confused whether or not there's more than one gospel, I'm coming here to tell you, if you keep hearing, man, you keep saying the same thing. You're right, because there's only one way to be saved, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen. Mark 16 and 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. I've had a lot of folks uh, in teaching Bible studies that have told me, well, see right there. Uh, he that believeth not shall be damned. See, it's only belief. Well, unfortunately, uh, you got to look at what does save you. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Peter put it this way, that, that, that baptism doth also now save us, not to put away the filth of the flesh, but an answer of a, conscience, a good conscience towards God. I, I listened to uh, something came across uh, my Instagram, and, and I listened to this person, and they quoted that verse from Peter. And it says that, that baptism saves us. And the very next phrase this guy said, he says, see, baptism doesn't save us. I said, go back and read the verse one more time, buddy. Wherefore now, baptism saves us. Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he that believeth not shall be damned. In other words, if you don't believe, you won't be baptized. And if you don't have faith toward God, there isn't salvation anyways because you're not going to obey God. You're not going to trust God. Amen. But if you believe, you will be baptized. If you believe, you will receive the Holy Ghost. If you believe, you will obey God and you will walk in his way. Everybody said amen. Jesus talked about baptism. John chapter 3 and verse 5. So there's a doctrine. I want you to notice he says the doctrine of baptisms, plural doctrine of baptisms John chapter 3 and 5 Jesus answered verily verily or of a truth of a truth I say unto you except a man be born of the water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God you got to be born of the water and of the spirit and we know that as we look through context and as we tie a couple other verses, Jesus is relating it directly towards being baptized in his name in the water. That's full immersion in water. We got a baptismal tank back here that any, any day of the week, we don't even have to wait till Sunday, we'll baptize anybody in Jesus' name. Amen. And he's saying that if you've not been born of the water and of the spirit, if there's not been a water baptism and a spirit baptism, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I don't care what, what, how many degrees uh, somebody has in theology. If they tell you anything other than that right there, they are not telling you the truth. 
you got to be baptized in the water and in the spirit. Amen. We know how water baptism was performed. Uh, it, was it was performed in the name of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Hallelujah. Matthew 28 and 19. Go ye therefore. Again, we're seeing another rendition of the, uh, of, of the great commission. We just read Luke 24 and 49. That repentance and remission. We see in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 where repentance comes in. And then remission is when baptism shows up. So he's not saying something different. Uh, telling each disciple that has a book to write to write something different because he's trying to make a contradiction. No, it all ties together perfectly. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost. Now, you can go back and you can listen to uh, the name of the Lord. We talked about that. Uh, what is the name of the Father? It's Jesus. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Uh, and then later he said, uh, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father shall send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Uh, Matthew 1.21, the Bible says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So we see that it's not talking about a third person of the Trinity. It's not talking about a, a triune thing. In fact, that's an ideology from the third century, from the Catholic Church, and it's nowhere in the Bible. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen. And so we see that it's baptizing them in the name. Well, we know the name is Jesus. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So now you see here's baptism uh, or water baptism, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's your spirit baptism right there. Flip over, if you have it right there, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Hope this is all right here tonight. Hope this is all right. Okay. The doctrines of Christ. Amen. Neither is there salvation in any other. And look at what he relegates salvation to. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Anybody who tells you you need to be baptized in the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they're lying to you. That's a title. Amen. I am, a, I am a son, I am a husband, and I am a brother, but my name is Evan. And so when you are baptized, you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that name was given under heaven, and we got to be saved by that name. Amen. Acts 22 and 16, proving it even further. Acts 22 and 16. And if anybody wants copies of this, I can give it to them later. Acts 22 and 16. And now... Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. How? Calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, it shocks me how many people. This is right there. It's in your Bible. You cannot miss it. And yet people have been missing it and saying that's not really important. I don't really need to do that. Well, my Baptist preacher said I don't need to do that. Or, or the Catholic priest said I don't need to do that. And right here in the Word of God, it's telling us to, to, to not wait to get up and do it. Arise and be baptized and call on the name of the Lord, which is the name of Jesus. Every recorded water baptism was done in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. Every single recorded baptism was done in the name of Jesus. John baptized with water unto repentance proclaiming that there would be a new baptism. This is why he talked about the, the doctrine of baptisms of water and of spirit. The Holy Ghost 
Baptism is what he talked about. Mark chapter 1 and verse 8. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, how does God baptize us in the Spirit? John chapter 3, verse 8. The Bible says the wind blows where it listeth or wants. You hear the sound thereof. You can't tell where it's coming or where it's going. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. Everybody that's born of the Spirit, you're going to hear a sound. Everyone that's baptized in the Spirit or baptized in the Holy Ghost, if you will, will speak in other tongues. Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Every last person there. Acts chapter 2, the Jews that were seated there began to speak with other tongues. Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans, half Jew, half Gentile, they saw and heard something when the apostles laid hands on them. There was something evident that they received the Holy Ghost or the Spirit baptism. Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles... They received the Holy Ghost and spake with other tongues while Peter yet spake his words. You can get the Holy Ghost while somebody's preaching. Acts chapter 19, the Bible says certain disciples, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And then they received the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. The doctrine of baptisms. We are baptized in water in the name of Jesus. And we are baptized in the Holy Ghost. And we speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. Is anybody thankful for that? Let's take a moment and just thank you for, for all of the goodness. Thank you for repentance. Thank you that, you that you have allowed me to be a person of faith where I have followed you. That you called me. You drew me. And I'm thankful, Lord, you baptized me in water in your wonderful name and washed my sins away. And I'm thankful, God, you fill people with the Holy Ghost even unto this day. And we have spoken on other tongues. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And finally here tonight, I want to talk. And, and, and again, there's a lot we could talk about. We will finish the remainder next time. But I want to talk about one that he put in the same category as repentance, faith towards God, and baptisms. The laying on of hands. Laying on of hands is a spiritual and misunderstood gesture in the Bible and in Christianity. You see, in the Old Testament, often the patriarchs would lay their hands on their children to impart a blessing, and they would speak a blessing over their life. Laying on of hands in the New Testament is the act of one Christian laying their hands on another to heal them, to impart God's blessing on them, to what we call in modern Pentecost, to pray them through to the Holy Ghost. To, they lay hands on people to dispense their spiritual gifts. They lay hands on them to appoint them to a new ministry. The laying on of hands is usually accompanied by prayer. In fact, I would say it's exclusively accompanied with prayer. The person laying on the hands is praying over the individual. And this is something that if you think about it, I know that in Pentecost, if you've ever been to a, uh, this is your first time, you just stick around for the altar call. We're going to lay hands on people. We're going to pray blessings and favor. We're going to pray people through the Holy Ghost. Uh, but this is, a, is something that is not talked about a whole lot. Uh, laying on of hands is something that people have observed, people have experienced, but not very many people understand. 
they don't realize, and, and, and often it is a lack of, of, of biblical education. The people don't understand that what we're doing is, I know some people, and let me just put it this way, I, I, I very much uh, used to be this way, and, and in some ways I still am. I'm not a touchy-feely person. Uh, and I remember coming to church, and everybody wanted to lay their hands on me. And, uh, and, and Brother Backrub came by, and, you know, if you got the Backrub ministry, we're going to pray you through here tonight, but... But I remember that. I remember coming into church, and, 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 and people were so excited. They wanted to pray for me. And I had no understanding or revelation why these people were touching me. I didn't realize until a little bit later, it's a doctrine in the Bible. And, and I will be talking a little bit about do's and don'ts here in just a moment, and uh, we'll pastor for just a second. But, but at the same time, it is, it is right in there. Laying on the hands is a basic doctrine of the faith. I know that a lot of people say, well, it's kind of weird, it's a little outdated, but it is right there uh, along with repentance. And when we talk about repentance, and when we talk about baptism, and when we talk about faith, uh, we've also got to be willing to take a moment and talk about what the Bible is meaning when it says that they laid hands on them. Acts chapter 6 and verse 6. The Bible says, whom they set before the apostles... And when they prayed, they laid hands on them. So you see the biblical evidence already happening. That people are being prayed for and there is a laying on of hands. Some may find this, this almost, if you, if you are new to church, you will be a lot like me when I first came to church. And I'll think, man, this is a little weird. But if you look at it from a biblical standpoint, uh, it's, it, it actually shouldn't surprise us that this is happening in the church. Hebrews 11, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, or verses 1 through 2, talk about the laying on of hands, is a principle. It's a basic doctrine of Christ. And it is placed in that category as a doctrine. Laying on of hands is used the most in the Bible for healing the sick. Divine healing did not end. And I've said this before, I'll say this a million more times until Jesus come back. Divine healing did did not end when the apostles died. I'll say that again. Divine healing did not end when the apostles died. Our God is still a healer. And God heals people when his people get together and they lay hands on the sick. My Bible says, and they shall recover. Oh, somebody praise him. Mark chapter 16, verses 17 through 18. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. For those who say you don't talk in tongues when you uh, get saved. Hallelujah. They shall take up serpents. I ain't talking about handling snakes. Uh, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. It's not saying go out and get alcohol poisoning. No. It's saying if somebody tries to poison you, it shall not hurt you. Uh, and, and then it says they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recovering, recover. The healing was to follow them that believe. I want you to notice that this is part of the great commission. In other words, this promise does not stay and die with the apostles. It does not stay in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. But my Bible says that it applies to everyone that believes in the name of Jesus. 
I think it's time for, for believers to start rising up. Amen. I want you to know that it's not the pastor that has the power to heal the sick. It's not those that have started a thousand churches in Africa that have the ability to lay hands on the sick. But it's everyone that is a believer in the name of Jesus that can lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Oh, somebody shout and give God praise. Hallelujah. So this does not just apply to the early church. does not apply to just the apostles. I know there's a lot of people who taught their whole life, oh, this died with the disciples. This died with the apostles. God doesn't heal anymore. You know, God doesn't give the Holy Ghost. I wouldn't go to a church like that. I wouldn't go to a church that doesn't believe the Bible. I know a lot of, I know churches that call themselves Bible-believing. They even got Bible in the name of their church, and yet you bring scriptures like this, and they go, well, I don't know. We believe that. I'm telling you, either you believe this book or you don't believe this book. Either we are believers of the word of God or we don't believe the word of God at all. And I'm in a church full of believers. I'm in a church that says we believe the word of God. We will lay hands on the sick and they shout. Somebody shout, shout. They shall recover. So, but this comes when they lay hands on the sick. We're coming to a close here in just a moment. Acts, Mark chapter 5, verse 23. We'll move through these quickly. And they besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. They're coming to Jesus. And I pray thee. What are they praying? What are they asking? What are they begging for? Come, lay hands on her. There was something about the, the early Jews that had a revelation that when Jesus lays hands on people, something changes. Amen. That she may be healed and that she might live. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 3. Flip over just a little bit. And Jesus, I want you to notice, when we talk about doctrines, doctrines are not built off one verse. Anybody who says, well, you just got to accept Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, and they, they pull up Romans Road and chapter 10 and say, see right there, you got to confess your mouth. Go back and we, to the podcast and listen. We talk about the name of the Lord, and you'll see what that's really saying. It's saying call on the name of the Lord in baptism. But, but they'll take one verse out of context, and they'll create a doctrine. We don't do that. We look and we put it together. If laying on of hands is supposed to be a doctrine, then we better be able to find it. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 3, And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Leprosy was cleansed by the laying on of his hand. Skip over. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 15. And he touched her. Speaking about Peter's mother-in-law. This might be why Peter denied him. We don't know. But... But immediately he touched, he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered to him. There was a laying on of hands right there. Amen. And, he, and, and, and skip over to Mark chapter 6, verse 5. We're going to go through these verses real fast. Mark chapter 6, verse 5. And he could do no mighty miracle, no mighty work, save that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. Man, I would, I, would, I would shout over that revival right there. He didn't do any mighty work, but, you know, a few sick folk, he just lay a hand on them. They got, sick, they got healed, and, you know. I'm telling you, there's coming a day where that's going to be no big deal for the blinded eyes to be open. Not going to be a big, what? Well, you know what? Brother Joe came in. He was blind, but, you know, we prayed for him. No big deal. It wasn't a mighty work. It was just a standard thing the church gets to doing. I'm telling you, when the church gets back to the Bible and gets back to the book, we'll just... We'll just start walking in it. You can be at Walmart, find somebody sick, and say, can I pray for you? 
And all of a sudden, you lay hands on them, and they get healed. I'm telling you, ARC, that is the next level of revival where we're going to start seeing and not just saying we believe it. We're going to start seeing active faith in operation. Amen. He just, he just uh, laid his hand on a few sick folk and healed them. No big deal. Jesus, you knew that right now. You just, if you're sick in your body, you know, go ahead and we'll pray for you here tonight. And we'll just, you know, he just heal, heal a few sick church folk and just touch a few. You know, go ahead and just heal a few folk of cancer. Not a big deal for Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 4 and verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had been sick with diverse diseases were brought unto him. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. There was a personal contact and he healed them. Acts chapter 9 verse 12. And Saul, and Saul, having seen a vision, a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him that he might receive his sight. So I want you to know that it wasn't just Jesus praying for people laying on their hands. It transferred to, it wasn't just the disciples or the apostles. I want you to notice, it was just a believer by the name of Ananias. We have no biblical proof that Ananias was a preacher. We have no biblical proof that Ananias was anything special except for the fact that he was a man filled with the Holy Ghost and full of faith. And when God was looking for somebody to go and lay hands on a future apostle that would change the known world and preach the gospel everywhere, he said, let me call Brother Joe. Let me call Sister Sally. You know, that, just that believer. Amen. I'm telling you, there's a day coming, ARC, where God's just going to start speaking to some, some good old saints. And it, it's not going to be, oh, the pastor got a testimony. He laid hands on all these people and they got healed. No, it's going to be Brother Joe just to lay hands on so-and-so and, -so and we don't know what happened, but God stepped in. It is a promise to the believer. And Ananias came, laid hands on him. He received his sight, great conversion, and he changes the known world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid to enact your faith. Acts chapter 28 and verse 8. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and a bloody flux, and to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid hands on him and healed him. I, I want us to notice this happens all the way through the Bible, all the way through the New Testament. Would you see it? They just lay hand on and they got healed. They just lay hand on and they got healed. I know some folks that go, well, what if God doesn't heal them? God never said you are a you are a a, a a witch doctor. He never said you're a medicine man or woman. He said if you're a believer, lay hands on the sick, and it's God's job that they recover. Amen. Our job is to say, God, I believe your word. I believe in your name. And I'm going to do what the book says. And I will lay hands. So laying on the hands, we see that that is done to heal people. But laying on the hands can also be used to what we call in modern Pentecost, to pray someone through to the Holy Ghost, to the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Of course, it's not the only way. That you can receive the Holy Ghost. Because as we've seen through the Bible. You can receive the Holy Ghost simply by asking God to fill you. You can receive the Holy Ghost sitting down. You can see, receive the Holy Ghost standing up. You could be in the back pew. You could be at the altar. You could be at home. You could be in your car. God will fill people with the Holy Ghost anywhere. Amen. And, and nobody has to be around. But yet we do see some biblical evidence that, that by the laying on of hands. It can be effective to help some people pray through the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 8 and verse 18. This is right after you see that, that Philip went down to Samaria and he baptized every one, of him, every one of them in the name of Jesus Christ. 
and, and none of them got the Holy Ghost yet. Acts chapter 8 and verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. He saw something transform in that moment. When they laid hands on him. I'm telling you, there's people that they come in those back doors. And you, you might think we look crazy by laying hands on people. But there's other folks saying something is transforming right there. There's people that are going to walk in. And the very thing that some folks want to take the tuck head and, and hide and be embarrassed of the church. Uh, they're going to come in and say something happened right there. There's folks that are going to walk in. And th they might be nervous and they may not want to be touched. Uh, but all of a sudden you're going to lay hands on them. And they're going to feel something they never felt before. And they're going to speak in a language they never knew. And they're going to say, surely the presence of the Lord was in that place. Uh, somebody magnify him. <laughs> Hallelujah few more verses on that just to give us some biblical context. Acts chapter 19 verse 6 and when Paul had laid his hands on them the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied when he laid hands on them they got the Holy Ghost. Now there's some folks here today that you could say well I remember uh, brother so and so or sister so and so laid hands on me and I received the Holy Ghost and there's others that can say uh, nobody touched me I was all by myself but I got the Holy Ghost all of that's valid. Amen laying on the hands is used for miraculous for for, for uh, healing it is used to pray for people through to the Holy Ghost but laying on the hands is also one of the ways used to impart spiritual gifting Paul's young companion Timothy had received spiritual gifts by the laying on of hands first Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14 the Bible says neglect not the gift that is in thee which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. He's saying that there was a gift that came on you when somebody laid hands on you. Amen. I, 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 want, I, want, to have good, I want to have good people's hand on my life, if you will. Amen. I don't ever want to forget the people that, that when I wasn't gifted prayed for me. I don't want to forget the people and the good old saints that when I wasn't a preacher, they laid hands on me and prayed for me. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, the Bible says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. He's saying, Timothy, don't forget the very gifts that came on your life. It came because somebody laid hands on you. Somebody laid hands on you. Laying hands is also utilized to impart blessing to one another. Matthew chapter 9 verse 13. Man, coming down the home stretch right here. They were, they were brought unto him, or speaking of Jesus, little children. Why? That he should put his hands on them. Were they sick? No. And pray. And the disciples, don't ever let this be said of anybody in the church. Uh, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, suffer the little children, forbid them not to come unto me. For such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and, and departed thence. There were people saying, you know what, I know there's something that happens when there is laying on of hands. I can't explain it. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, 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 all I know is there's germs going around. That's all I know. But yet when Jesus lays his hand or when somebody gets prayed for, there is a spiritual blessing that is imparted in that moment. And people said, they started lining their kids up saying, would you pray for my kid? Uh, I, I'm telling you, we, we ought to just, we, we ought to never be ashamed to come to the altar. Never be ashamed to say, hey, hey, can you pray for me? Can you lay hands on me? I know there's this weird thing that happens in, in apostolic churches where people, you know, they don't want anybody to think they're struggling. 
They don't want to think anybody that, that think that something's going wrong and they don't want to appear to be a sinner. They want to look pious. So they'll sit in the back. Oh, brother, praise the Lord. You know. But the truth is what they really need is they need to hit that altar and say, I'm the one in need. Pray for me. Amen. Anybody ever been there where you were the one and you didn't want to go to the altar, but you knew that something was going to transpire in that moment? There was going to be a spiritual blessing you couldn't explain. You've been praying for things, praying for things. Nothing's changing. Nothing's happening. And all of a sudden, they lay their hands on you and something spiritual happened in that moment. Oh, somebody shout and give God praise. Let's stand all across the building. Hallelujah. Come on, let's pray. Come on, you may not be able to explain it, but I'm telling you, when there is laying on of hands, faith is transpiring. When there's laying on of hands, miracles are happening. When there's laying on of hands, the Holy Ghost is being poured out. When there's laying on of hands, there is gifting from God that is hitting your life. When there's laying on of hands, there is a spiritual blessing. Church, it is a doctrine of Christ. Let us never forget it. And let us never be ashamed. I am not ashamed to bring a visitor in the church and say, come with me to the altar. We're going to pray for you. Now I'm going to go into something for just a moment before we're done. You remain standing. Laying over hands is done, or at least it, 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 it should be done, by, by people that are full of faith. It should be done properly and decently and in order. Again, if you got the back row ministry, you're probably going to cause more damage than good. You, you ought to just pray for them from a distance. Or uh, Let me just put it this way. Can I put some things in order? If you're going to pray for somebody, uh, men, pray for men. Ladies, pray for ladies. Men, I, right? And there are appropriate ways to touch people, and there are inappropriate ways to touch people. Now, if you're a minister in this church and you're recognized, uh, we, if there's a visitor or if you're, you know, whatever, you go lay, for, lay hands on somebody. But, but this is what the Bible says. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Don't, don't just come up. And I know that that's in a different context, but it's still true. Uh, I'm going to probably knock you out if I'm praying. And you know, Don't do that for anybody. Don't just shock them over them. You're not going to bless them any more than that. Amen. You're going you're to probably confuse them. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, would you mind if I pray with you? I don't know where some people just think it's wrong to talk to somebody in the altar. Don't be afraid to talk to somebody and say, hey, uh, I'm going to pray for you. And the Bible says that, that, that uh, we're, we're to lay hands on you. And what that means is we're going to pray for you. We're going to lay our hands on your forehead or if it's appropriate. We're going to lay hands on your, your hand or your shoulder. We're going to pray for you and we're going to pray God blesses you. We're going to pray God fills you with the Holy Ghost. We're going to pray God heals you. Amen. And nothing wrong with that. That's all right. And so... Laying on of hands is done for many things. There's more things we could talk about here today. But one of the other things it's, it's done is when somebody's being called into a ministry, there is a praying over them. There is a laying on of hands. We see this happen to Paul and Barnabas. There is a laying on of hands when people are appointed and anointed to go and to serve tables. It doesn't seem like a whole big deal. In other words, I'm going to appoint this this way. If you are in ministry, please do not forsake the altar. Please, if you have to step away from your instrument, if you have to step away from your post because uh, you know you're struggling, uh, I want you to know it's still okay for people to pray for those that are in ministry and those that are helping. Laying on of hands is biblical. 
I'll give a little instruction. Don't shake people up. Don't fling them around. Don't scare them. I often will come by and somebody raising their hand. I'll, I'll touch their hand and let them know I'm there. And if they're already praying, I'm not going to interrupt them. I'll pray with them gently. Lay my hand on their forehead. But if they're standing there looking like a deer in the headlights, I'm not like, right? I know some folks that do that. What we're trying to encourage is people to pray for people with the laying on of hands, not to discourage. But we want to do it properly. We want to do it decently in order. And if the church can get this doctrine right here correct, I, I, I want to see a day where there are there is never a visitor that comes through those doors that somebody doesn't offer to pray for them. You have no idea what they're coming in from. They're coming in from abuse. They're coming in from drug addiction. They're coming in from, from their marriage falling apart. And, and they might look stone cold. And they might look like nobody. They don't want anybody praying for them. But if you walk back and say, would you mind if I prayed for you? Uh, go ahead and lift up your hands. And, and if they say, go ahead, I, I'd love for you to pray for me. Uh, at that point, you got their permission. Go ahead and lay hands and begin to proclaim blessing over their life. If they don't have the Holy Ghost, begin to pray for them to receive the Holy Ghost. Would you lift up your hands church right now we're gonna pray I'm gonna pray right now that in the name of Jesus that this that this essential doctrine would get in the hearts of every individual I am not embarrassed to lay hands on people I am not ashamed to lay hands on people I'm gonna pray blessing I'm gonna pray favor there's gonna be gifting I am not ashamed to have somebody pray for me God go ahead let them lay hands on me let them bless me let them pray for me Amen. We'll get back to the rest of the doctrines of Christ next time. But I wonder if we could take a moment and in this atmosphere, if we could come here to the front of the altar. You know, there's something that transpires in the laying on of hands. I can't explain. I really can't. There's no biblical thing that says, okay, because you did this, all of a sudden uh, there's energy that's trans. We don't know. We don't know. But what we do know is the biblical proof that something happens when there's laying on of hands. And sometimes you could be struggling. And sometimes you can be, you could be in your worst day, in your worst state of life. And all of a sudden a brother comes by and just lays a hand on the shoulder and just starts praying with you. There's something that transpires when believers get together. And they start praying for one another. And if we could ever set anything into the culture of ARC, this is what I want to set to the, the, the atmosphere right here. Don't be ashamed to be prayed for, and don't be ashamed to pray for somebody else. In fact, we're going to send out this service that very way. Why don't you do, if it's appropriate, men with men, ladies with ladies, husband with wife. Uh, why don't you find somebody? Brother to brother, sister to sister, lay your hand over on their shoulder. Something transpires in that moment. And begin to pray a blessing over them. Begin to pray faith over them. Begin to pray, Lord, if they're sick in their body, I pray that there be healing. If they are struggling, I pray that there would be deliverance. Come on, church. There are things transpiring in the spirit when the church gets together and prays and lays hands on one another. It is a doctrine and something is happening right now. Come on, you don't know what that brother might be struggling with. You don't know what that sister might be struggling with. Come on, lay hands on them and pray. 
If you don't have the Holy Ghost, I want to invite you to lift up your hands and begin to glorify God and let us lay hands on you. And we're going to pray the Holy Ghost would fill you right now. Come on, church, that's it. This is a holy moment. This is a doctrinal moment. together and starts praying for one another it's a doctrine and something's transferring
Come on. Find somebody and pray with them right now. If you're done praying for yourself, find somebody and pray with them. Something's happening in this moment. Come on. This is a spiritual moment. If you don't have the Holy Ghost, you can have it. If you, if you need healing in your body, you can have it right now. If you need a financial miracle, you can have it right now. If you need deliverance, you can have it right now. is still moving. Come on, there's something transpiring. I can't explain it, but it's from the Holy Ghost. Spiritual's happening in this moment. Something spiritual's happening in this moment. Cry out to God. Cry out to God. That's it, Brother Guillermo. Come on. Come on, it's working. It's working. There is gifting flowing in this house. There is blessing flowing in this house. The Holy Ghost is being poured out in this house. There is deliverance being poured out. It's a doctrine. 